Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. On this episode, I have composer Sean Kirchner. He is officially the Swan family composer in residence of the Los Angeles Master Chorale. I was introduced to his music last season. Uh, the LA Master Chorale put on a concert called Made in LA. It was all living composers from Los Angeles, and he was a, a featured composer. And he premiered a piece that night called Memorare, and it really just blew, really blew my socks off. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. It, it brought me to tears. I really, I mean, I, I, I wept actually. And uh, I caught him backstage afterwards, and we got to know each other a little bit there. And I, I've seen him around town uh, at sessions. Uh, he's also a, a singer with the LA Master Chorale, and he does a lot of session work around town as well. He's a super nice guy. I was so uh, pleased to, to sit down with him for over an hour today, and, uh, and I, I was so happy to get to know him a, l a little bit better. And um, he's just a very thoughtful uh highly intelligent, very articulate person. We had a terrific conversation, and I really hope you enjoyed as much as I did, because I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Sean, thanks for coming today. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. I know it's a real schlep for you, and I would have come closer to you. We're just going out of town tomorrow, and it's kind of a drag. No, it's all fine. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to look up a couple things online uh, about you, and I came across I came across these songs on iTunes, and I don't know, on iTunes, I don't know if it's I don't know if you're the same, if there's another Sean Kirchner. There are three Sean Kirchners in the United States. Uh, okay. In the whole United States. One is a female soccer player from Massachusetts. Okay. One is another guy of undetermined provenance and locale. <laughs> okay. And profile. Okay. I don't know. And then the other one's me. I mean, there was this, I found this album of songs. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they're kind of uh, old timey. In a way, is that you? That's me. It is. That's me. It you just seems so country out... bluegrass, kind of. Folk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm eclectic. I love that. When did you get into? Th is that how you got into music? Oh no, no, With no. that kind of music? No, no, no. Well, I'm kind of a hybrid because my father's my father was a country music person, like Johnny Cash, Statler Brothers. Okay. My mom was an elementary school music teacher and a church person, so she grew up singing four-part harmony and playing the piano and she liked classical music so i'm kind of this hybrid so um classical music was my thing but um i always was interested in at college i started playing banjo and guitar okay and f suddenly discovered folk music that i had missed because i was interested in opera during yeah. high school yeah 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 um which is so which is actually the only time in my life i had an opera phase was in high school what I'm, got not, you? I'm not a fan of opera. What got you into that to begin um, with? Was it something in particular, like the you know, Three Tenors concert or something? No, no, no. I, I went to a piano camp at Oberlin Conservatory mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. And on the street, there was a shop. It was selling records like that they were trying to get rid of. Yeah. And I got a record of Fürtwängler conducting Kirsten Flagstad. Oh, boy. In, An all-Nazi cast. In Tristan Rotisolda. <laughs> And it was just incredible. Yeah. And so I would take it home and play it over and over again. And I would like make my 
brother, I'm a triplet. Make my brother and sister and my mom and dad listen to certain phrases. Wait, did you say certain... you're you're one of a triplet? Yeah. You, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But um, anyway, I was really into opera for a while, but then I discovered folk music, and started playing guitar. So. Well, it wasn't. Do, only... do you want Do you want to circle back to that? Yeah, music yeah, yeah. Thing? Yes, yes, please. <laughs> okay. There's tangent alert. There's like lots of off ramps right now. Um, that project came about actually because of the movie Brokeback Mountain. Really? Yeah. And that movie hit me like a ton of bricks. And there was a certain, I don't know, there's a certain thing it did for a certain percentage of people throughout the world that it just kind of stopped them. And for me, what it actually asked as a movie was, what are you giving your life for? Uh-huh. And what's going to happen next in your life? Because uh-huh. if you if you saw that movie and saw the final scene where Heath Ledger's character was finally kind of owning up to what he really who, cared about in right. life, who he really was, right. who he really loved. And it just ends open-ended. And there's no, there's no way of him getting back what he's lost. But also there's this sense of, what are you going to choose? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to choose? And I think for a certain percentage of people, it didn't matter whether you were, you know, straight or gay or what community you were a part of. Right. That question made people ask it's themselves so, of their own life is like, what am I going for in my life? It's so, so universal, right? I know mm-hmm. people that moved across the country after seeing that movie because they said, I've never gone for what I really wanted to go for in my life. Anyway, I was affected in a similar way of kind of like, Oh my God, if art can do that, I want to make art like that. Because I felt like it just kind of ripped my chest open yeah. and left my heart just kind of open, open. And for like a couple of weeks, I was just almost like I had experienced a death in the family. And and I know that it's weird because it, not all people had that effect when they saw it. But for me, it was that way. Yeah. And where were you at the time? Where were you? Living? I was here in LA. You were. Mm-hmm. I was here in LA. Mm-hmm. Um. And for me, whenever I've had a really intense life event, I kind of respond. I'm, I'm kind of, I have earthquakes, but but like I feel them later. So yeah. like the actual tectonic shift shifts. And then like a month later, I'm like, oh my God, something really major just happened in my life. And then what I usually find is that I start responding musically to it because that's how I, I think I supplement. I, I think some musicians are this way that that you don't, for example, with grief, you don't grieve the way, quote, a normal person grieves. Mm-hmm. There's like a sublimation process where it, it gets converted into music. And then as expression or, and then your uh-huh. mourning and your processing turns into music, turns into songwriting, turns into whatever. Uh-huh. And so for whatever reason, that movie just was it for me. It's a huge catalyst. So, so yeah. I started responding by writing songs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote the title track from that CD, which is called Meet Me on the Mountain, mm-hmm. that just kind of was just there. Was I was, this on, your I was first, on a road trip. Was this your first foray into this kind of composition? Or? Um, you know what? It wasn't my first foray into songwriting. And I started writing songs when I first started taking piano lessons when I was eight. Like I wrote my first song when I was eight. I see. So songwriting was always something I did. Uh-huh. And I had a great mentor in college named Steve Kinsey, a wonderful poet and songwriter. He's the guy I learned to play banjo from. Mm-hmm. And he kind of awakened me just to the idea that songwriting could be a part of my life. And I, I, was, I was always interested in words and 
you know, poetry and that kind of thing. Uh -huh. So I cared about lyrics and uh -huh. stuff. But the thing that was different about this project was after I wrote the first song, then I also wrote a second one called Miser on a Pile of Gold. Uh -huh. And it was this idea that Heath's character, um, I'm forgetting, Ennis was yeah. the name mm -hmm. of his character. He was very taciturn. He wouldn't express himself, mm -hmm. but there was so much inside. Yeah, like still waters run deep. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and so I wrote the song called Miser on a Pile of Gold. Mm -hmm. But what I also realized was it was kind of about me. It was like, you have to express yourself. You have to let out the ideas and the feelings that you have in your life. You can't, you know, you can't hold on to all that stuff. So, so it was kind of autobiographical, but then I kind of got on a roll and I started writing songs for the characters at turning points in the film. Yeah. Without necessarily meaning to, I'm like, oh my God, I am writing the musical. Right. Without intending to. So I wrote songs for, you know, Michelle Williams character at a, at a certain turning point or for Anne Hathaway's character mm -hmm. when she was starting to kind of lose hope in her in their own relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was so fertile. I mean, so I, I went and saw the movie a few other times, kind of like as research. Tips. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, okay. I really want to study facial expressions and feelings. But what was different about that project was before I had always written songs for myself. Like my, my mother was killed very tragically in 1998 and I wrote an album's worth of songs responding to that but that was for me yeah what was different about this project was i was writing songs for the characters uh -huh. and i didn't realize that i could do that my brother and sister are really good actors and i am the world's worst actor but what i discovered in this project was my way of acting is to stand right at that moment mm -hmm. when the character is feeling something and then just write uh -huh. so i just i so for lyric generation i just said i'm right there in that moment what would that person say? What would that person be feeling? And that's where I generated all the songs for this album. So I, I, I kind of got carried away because I was like, you know, when you're... And then how, how did you record it? I mean, I, there's one thing to have a, a genesis of an idea, and then yeah. there's another thing to yeah. produ actually produce the work, and then there's a whole other thing to record it and yeah. promote it. Did you promote it? or well, how did, see, what, here's the thing. What I was mean, the purpose? I mean, you know, the whole idea of... I mean, besides uh, obviously yeah, expressing yeah, yeah. yourself, but in a commercial sense, was there you a commercial know, sense to it? Well, here's the, here's the problem. For me in LA and everywhere, I guess there's this idea of being nobody and being somebody, mm -hmm. which I instinctively rebel against because anybody who suddenly becomes somebody has always been somebody. Mm -hmm. It's just that suddenly there's some profile or some light shed on the right. person. Right. It's not like people haven't been doing good work That's right. the rest of their life. Yeah. So so I, I, I dislike that idea, but I was kind of victimized in my own mind by that idea because I felt like I didn't have any connections. You mean just by the zeitgeist and the general well, sense no, I, of no, things I, here in I, LA? I, or? No, no, no. I, I just felt like here I am close to the entertainment hub of the world mm -hmm. and I have this project that's on fire mm -hmm. and I have no idea what to do with it mm -hmm. because I felt like I had no one to give it to. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had enough connections that if I called somebody up or I cold calls, say, I've got I've got like the musical for mm -hmm. this thing. I have the, I seriously have it. I have all the songs for all the scenes done. Now, was that a tertiary concern or was that something that you thought of when well, you were writing no, the no, whole I, no, project? I, was, I, I felt actually kind of desperate huh. because I, I felt like I had a responsibility to the community that was moved by that film mm -hmm. to give the songs to them. Mm -hmm. And I had, I felt like I had this great need to share them. Mm -hmm. And and so my, for that six months, I, I was writing songs all the time. I, I would go out to like you know, the airport near my house where I walk my dog and just sit there yeah. and work on a song, you know, let the lyrics come. 
So it was very intense. And so I started realizing I have to do something with this album. I yeah. have to at least record it and get these songs down. Mm -hmm. So the first person I turned to was Alice Kerwin Murray. I don't know if you know her I, from no, the Ellie Master. Crowd. I don't. She's a wonderful, you know, singer. Mm -hmm. But I knew that she had done some musical theater and she had done always Patsy Cline. She had portrayed Patsy Cline in Chicago Perfect. in some big, you know, big shows, yeah. and big venues. So I, I asked her to come listen to a few of the songs. And she said, Sean, this should become something. So the next person I contacted was Michael Geiger, sure. my friend from LA Opera and LA Master. I said, Michael, will you help me produce this album? Mm -hmm. So he started helping me. And we started, so the whole idea was just to make a demo, just mm -hmm. to get these songs on, down on. So anyway, it kind of snowballed and eventually early June that year, the movie came out in December or whatever. Yeah. By June the next year, we had a recording session. This was 2006. Mm -hmm. And Michael was wonderful. He got these amazing players. George During, you know, one of the top session players in mm -hmm. LA, agreed to be guitarist. Yeah. Um, Gabe Witcher, who actually played fiddle on the Brokeback Mountain soundtrack, wow. was my fiddler. Bobby Page helped, you know, Michael with the contracting, huh? with with getting in some of our, our good singers and helped coach the sessions and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, my partner at the time, wonderful singer Ryan Harrison, has mm -hmm. all the leads. Terrific, terrific voice, uh -huh. um, and can sing in lots of different styles. Yeah, and then we had Karen Harper, another a longtime LA session singer had some of the other leads for wow it turned into a big yeah so, so big I, deal. I, I basically yeah. cast people in the roles mm -hmm. to some extent vocally and then we had such amazing players there's this mandolin prodigy who i had grown up with through actually um my church community is a small denomination that has these really neat folk festivals every summer yeah and there was this young quaker mandolin prodigy who grew up coming to these folk festivals with us and he he you know now now tours all the time and he went to the Brooklyn School but he came down and was the mandolinist yeah anyway we had a fantastic roster of players and we just recorded it and then it turned out to be kind of Michael and I were listening to it saying this is kind of like more than a demo this needs to be just an album yeah so after that two days of recording we literally did all the recording in two days wow um, in fact all the instrumental recording was done in less than six hours. Oh, and Tommy Morgan, the legendary harmonica player who played on Paul Simon, Rainy Days and Mondays wow. and Sanford and Son. Sure. Um, the boxers, right? Yeah, yeah, say. yeah. He came in and was our harmonica player because Jack's instrument in the movie was harmonica. I mean, I hate to ask, but where did you, how did you pay for all of this? Well, I'm Midwestern. I mean, that's a... I'm Midwestern and I'm, and I save money. <laughs> I save money. Yeah. So I had been saving money. And also um, what I had done with my royalties for my choral publishing, mm -hmm. I've just always kept it aside in uh, a savings account that I never touch. Mm -hmm. And I only consider it to be my investment for future musical projects. Mm -hmm. So I had some yeah. things set aside wow. that I purposely wasn't touching. And also we were very economical and we were very fast. Sure. Um, I ended up putting a little bit more money into it after we decided that there was enough here that we just had to kind of, we needed a few more sessions because mm -hmm. we're like, wow. So let's just get, make sure all the performances yeah. are where we want them. And get it mastered. Just because we, had, we sure. had plenty of time. So we actually had the wonderful um, king of all the masters. Um, I'm not going to be able to say his name right now, out in Ojai. Mm -hmm. I think he's retired since then. Um, has done all of Alison Krauss's oh, wow. mastering labs. Oh, why can't I say his name? Anyway, um, 
he did our mastering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Michael and our engineer, Adam Olmsted, and I went out to Ojai for a day to have some wonderful mastering sessions with the magician. Is it Pearson? No. Um, Let's see. It's not Doug Sachs, is it? I'm looking Forgive right me now. for forgetting your name. Oh, well, yeah, you're right. They're they're <laughs> gone. Yeah, Doug Sachs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we had such a good day out there in Ojai at his place. Anyway, we decided to just try to do it right. So I, I've had this album out now for 10 years. Yeah. And, and kind of people discover it. At, at, at one time, it was kind of like the front flash page on my website. Because mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, my gosh, people have to know about this album. I'm so proud of my baby. Sure. But you get to have new babies when you're doing other things. So then you start working on a new project. And, and it kind of... Um, dims as your main thing no, of course yeah. but, but i'm still very proud of the project i i still actually hope that it at some point can go somewhere mm -hmm. and and if if there could be an agreement with you know annie prue's people mm -hmm. um i have kind of a weird business model or a career model in which i sit and wait a lot instead of jumping ahead well so, so i don't know i don't know if it means i'm just fearful or if i'm just kind of intuitive in terms of organic of let's see if this comes together because there's been an opera at this point uh -huh. and I did have a, a producing team assembled for a while that was going to help me move forward mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were some initial contacts made with Annie Prue's you know um, agent lawyer mm -hmm. whoever mm -hmm. and there were some other things that arose that that made it seem like well now's not the time to pursue this yeah. but I, I still actually hope that it will become something. Now you because mentioned I, I'm I'm still really proud of the song. No, it's I, beautiful. I put my absolute heart and soul into every song. Well, yeah, no, so. I listened to it, and I, I just I that's why I had to ask. I it just seems like such a departure from the music that I've heard the master chorale perform. Obviously, like your choral repertoire is just vastly different stylistically from what's on that album. So yeah. I, it really threw me yeah. for a loop. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm kind of I'm not sure a chameleon is the right word of it, but just the sense of I've always been interested in different musical languages or different stylistic veins. Um, I, I had a Joan Baez album in high school, mm -hmm. which was mainly her folk music, but the last track was gospel. Uh -huh. It was like, Oh Freedom. And then she was at a black church doing this wonderful piece. And then at a certain point in the piece, the, the pianist in the room just took off and started going. And I was like, I have to learn how to do that. Yeah. So, so I had never been involved in gospel music per se, but I said, I have to learn how to do that. And so I've always had this thing of like, I don't know, just, just like foreign languages are beautiful. I love French. Yeah. I like German. I yeah. like Chinese. Yeah. I mean, musical languages are beautiful and they have their own way of saying things. And there's certain things you can only do in that language. Do you perceive that so, as being so, risky at all professionally? Because I, um, I don't know what the, I mean, do you look at it as a because what the way that you're talking about your profession and the, uh -huh. the path that you've taken, it's it's a similar to the way that I think about my profession and my life in general, where yeah. I just kind of keep my eyes and ears open and look for I don't even look for opportunities. I just let my heart kind of take me in the direction that feels right at the moment. Yeah. But then in retrospect, I'm kind of left with these disparate, um, like cobbled together styles yeah. or these and, outliers and, yeah, yeah 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 i mean do you find that risky yeah. professionally or does you that know, something that you don't even think about you know you know i i had a quote midlife crisis around the time i was turning 40 yeah 
And and also, I have to say that the the Meet Me on the Mountain project that we were talking about earlier, it actually kind of led me to a point where I felt like I had to ask either or questions to myself. Okay. Because what I discovered was, although I enjoy composing, mm -hmm. I, I, I love composing, in some ways I actually love songwriting more. And I, and I think I'm actually better. I, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm better as a songwriter than Whoa, as a- Whoa, Sean, I gotta a, tell you, that piece that you wrote at that, that Master Choral premiere this last season just devastated me. So I don't know, I take exception to what well, you're saying because well, that, well, that okay. choral piece was, fucking awesome. <laughs> okay, let, let me say a little bit more then. Let me say a little bit more. What I'm interested in is the intersection between songwriting and composing. I see. Because I think they're actually very different in some ways. However, the choral world has always to some extent relied upon songwriting because it uses lyrics, it uses melody. You're talking about the melody, yeah. It okay. uses melody as a deliverer of musical material. Some some, some do, yes. Yeah, well, well <laughs> and, 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 and I'm an Alice Parker yeah. protege, yeah. so I'm never gonna give up on melody. It's so tonal and so sympathetic and so- Alice oh. Parker has this amazing story about, she talks about her years where she kind of had to be quiet professionally mm -hmm. because she was raising five kids. Mm -hmm. She had five kids at home under the age of something like eight. I mean, she had a lot of kids close together in yeah. time. And, and she spoke at the Chorus America convention last summer. Mm -hmm. And she said, I wouldn't trade those years for anything. She said, I learned so much about music. Mm -hmm. She said, when I, she said, I specifically remember changing my daughter on the changing table and singing to her as I did so. Yeah. And I observed my daughter's attention and I observed that she could not wait to see what note was coming next. So the way that the human brain itself innately, is wired just innately works. to watch the sequence mm -hmm. of the unfolding of melody. Mm -hmm. And she and, and that in in some ways I think that's undergirded Alice's whole approach. Her whole organization is called Melodious Accord, just the idea that in some ways melody is a, foremost. Yeah. And and I have to say, um, I mean, I, I like to invent theories and invent little pithy statements that summarize things, you know, erroneously uh, no, put everything into a yeah, small yeah, thimble yeah. as if this was all of it. Sure. But but one of the ones I came up with this spring was like in the beginning was melody and the melody was the rise and fall of her voice. And what that means is the mother. Mm -hmm. So every human being's very first experience apart from the sensory experience of warmth and wetness sure. mm -hmm. and closeness mm -hmm. is the sound of the mother's voice mm -hmm. rising and falling. And so I, I don't mean to make too much out of it, but, no, but, but, in, really, a, but in a, way, in a yeah. way, I actually think it could be more, much more elemental than we think. The very first thing a human being experiences in sound is the rise and fall of the mother's voice. Yeah. And it happens in sentences and in phrases mm -hmm. and in arches. Mm -hmm. And so if we respond to melodies because it is the deepest, oldest thing we've ever experienced as a, as a being. Mm -hmm. and, then the, uh, the, and the second one goes right along with it, rhythm. And that, beat, and that first rhythm is the beating of the mother's heart. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I think about what's happened in musical experimentation and just the natural organic development of music through time, people just naturally want to try things that have not been done. Sure. When I look at the musics that have essentially kind of departed for a while from melody mm -hmm. and departed from regular rhythm, mm -hmm. which was, you know, a lot of what became in vogue 
in the 20th century and even kind of became a new norm of you have to be writing like this otherwise, otherwise you don't it's account not serious. for anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, um, may he rest in peace, but I was angry in absentia at Pierre Boulez when I read in Alex Ross's survey of American, or survey of 20th century music called The Rest is Noise, how there would actually be walkouts in concerts if a, if a composer was using tonal language or melody or things like that. People would walk out and say, there's nothing here that's it's worth unserious. listening to, mm -hmm. it's worth listening to. Mm -hmm. And for me, the abdication of melody and rhythm, I, I'm not gonna say yeah. it's a violence, but what I am gonna say, it's a turning your back on the most fundamental sonic experience that a human being ever had. Right, which was and depends upon. With the mother's yeah. voice mm -hmm. and the mother's heart. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for, so, 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 getting back into how this relates into songwriting, how this relates into choral music. For me, in songwriting, you get to kind of more purely work with that basic thing, of that basic expression mm -hmm. in words, in melody, and I love the finite boundaries of a song. All I need to do is generate this. You mean basic, the, para the paradigms that exist yeah, in songwriting? Yeah, yeah. Is that part yeah, this, of the ease? this basic structure? And so within that confine, there's almost like a, a total creative freedom because of the constraint. I just feel like I can have this whole little world that I can create, and it has such solid edges without criticism. Yeah, and I can freely do melody. Mm -hmm. I, and and the other irony of this all was after I had had this album of bluegrass country folk tunes. Mm -hmm performed amazingly by wonderful musicians. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how am I gonna market this? How am I gonna get it out? A friend saw a flyer, I live over near Claremont, said about a new jazz club opening up in Claremont called mm -hmm. Hip Kitty, he said, you should start playing there. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I can play there and then have people notice my bluegrass album. Crazy idea, of course. So I, so I formed a little jazz trio and then a jazz quartet. We started performing, you know, kind of classic gold you know classic. and what were you were you playing in I was those, playing uh, what were you playing what was piano, your instrument piano. piano and finally it was my chance to learn jazz piano because although i had kind of learned gospel style going yeah. back to what we had talked about yeah, earlier yeah. i really had learned gospel style through college mm -hmm. i really listened a lot i learned mm -hmm. a lot and i I'm, I'm pretty good at gospel style on the piano yeah i had not really learned jazz all the way one of my nightmare embarrassing music stories in grad school um I got a job as an accompanist for modern dance classes. Yeah. And they put me with this great percussionist and this amazing experienced jazz flautist and saxophonist. Wow. Who was really great player. They mm -hmm. were both great players. Were they students or were they? No, no, these are just local professionals. I went to University of Iowa in Iowa City. These are just local professional jazz guys. Okay. Who this was kind of their day gig was playing for these modern dance classes. Wow. They threw me in because they heard me I had to audition. I improvised one day on like some, I don't know, nine eight or five eight, and it went well. It was kind of some flowing kind of thing. Yeah. So they kind of hired me and said, "Oh my gosh, let's hire this guy." Mm -hmm. Then they threw me in with the Wolves, these experienced jazz players, and at the end of the first week, <laughs> the the great jazz flautist guy said, "All your progressions sound like show tunes." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I just felt like, like. I was doing the best I knew how sure. because I had not studied jazz. Sure. I briefly played in uh, the jazz band at my college sure. for like one semester. Listen, if that's your most embarrassing musical moment, you've, you've been doing okay so, so far. <laughs> so I, I immediately went to the Iowa City Public Library and checked out CDs of Chick Corea, sure. um, Keith Jarrett, 
and just got started and said, okay, I am not going to go back next week frustrating him with music, uh, musical theater chord progressions. Yeah. Although, you know, things actually gotten much more sophisticated since that time. That, yeah, of course. That was the, you know, mid-90s. Yeah, 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 of course. So he, so I, I got back the next day. He says, oh, you've been listening to some Jarrett. <laughs> <laughs> so all that is to say, I had kind of started getting my toes wet with jazz style. Yeah. But until I had finished this Meet Me on the Mountain bluegrass project in, you know, the mid-2000s, I hadn't really fully delved into jazz piano. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, Sean, you're old enough. You've done enough stuff. You can actually learn your 13th chords now. Yeah. You can learn your flat fives and your... You can learn all that stuff. You sure. can do this. You can get your 11ths figured out. Was piano your primary instrument growing oh, yeah, up? Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. It's always definitely, been piano. Definitely. What I found at Old Time Music in Pasadena mm -hmm. was these Steinway anthologies of transcriptions by great American jazz arrangers of standards uh -huh. arranged for jazz piano. And they were sophisticated and had all the chord symbols. Wow. So I'm like, okay, well, great. This is awesome. Because I read. I read well. And I play by ear well. Yeah. So if I just input all of this stuff into my brain yeah. and I'm listening a lot, I'm somehow going to magically school myself on jazz. Yeah. And then I and, and then I'm when I get down to it, I'm diligent about things. So I, I bought these kind of complex chord chart things where I would make myself little exercises mm -hmm. where I'd force myself to like do certain, you know, chords changes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then do them in every key and then just let myself improvise a little bit coming away and back to that. So I would just kind of get my brain and my fingers used to those chords and as many keys as I could kind of get my So you're saying skill. the trick is practicing. <laughs> the trick is always practicing. Oh, I should have started so, this show a long time ago. So anyway, all that is to say is in attempts to market my bluegrass CD, yeah. I finally learned jazz piano, I learned another style, but getting back to where you were started with this whole thing is I, I was learning another music language, but still was doing the same basic things mm -hmm. in its own way, mm -hmm. which for me as a person that's been rooted in songwriting and rooted in choral music, particularly mm -hmm. is what does a human being have to say to another human being in words and sound? Because that's what all of this stuff has in common. So, so for me in my choral writing, I'm still essentially in some ways relating to it as a songwriter. Hmm. And, and, and so also I have to say, I, I look at music history, you know, I, I think about someone like Tchaikovsky, mm -hmm. who I would say essentially maybe has been criticized for lack of development and things, motivic development, other things. Mm -hmm. But if you look at him as a melodist, if you look at him as a songwriter, essentially, you know, what are his greatest successes? His greatest successes are these amazing melodies. Mm -hmm. The Nutcracker Suite is filled with songs. Those yeah. are actually songs and everybody in song knows them. form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I guess if you have to kind of cast your lot with a certain group of, of musical approaches, mm -hmm. that is the one that I've cast my lot with, essentially. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 I'm, not, I'm not an experimentalist and a sound artist mm -hmm. at heart which I think by temperament or personality type, certain composers oh, are. Do we still need, do, is, that, is there still a place for that? Oh, there's absolutely yes. a place for that. Because, I mean, at the same time, think about, you know, early human history, mm -hmm. when people are discovering voice, they're discovering sound, they, they get into like a little canyon that echoed. Mm -hmm. And they sat there for half a day and had fun making echoes. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's always a part of the human being that's going to have fun experimenting with sound mm -hmm. and being sound artists. Mm-hmm. 
And, and this is no disrespect to people for whom that's their fundamental orientation as sound artists. What can sound do? Right. What, what, what can I do if I, if I drop a pebble and right. it's going to bounce a few times and then come to stop? Or well, it was gonna... like the piece that they did at the Master Chorale in the last concert about the uh, Aurora Borealis. Yeah. Oh, my God. Which that I blew me which away. Which I totally loved. Oh. Which I totally loved. I've seen the Northern Lights. Yeah. I thought it was an absolute brilliant. And, and I really like Hilborg and I've had the privilege of getting to speak with him briefly backstage mm -hmm. once when we did an LA Phil collaboration with him. And I asked him about a certain effect he was going to have. How yeah. did you do that? Yeah. How did you get such a gray sound? It was like Sirens. Um, yeah. It was a wonderful piece um, called Sirens. Mm -hmm. He started off with this kind of murky, cloudy. It was, and for me, in color, it was just pure gray. Huh. I'm like, how did you achieve that? He says, it was absolute chromatic division I, I just did chromatic division of every octave in the strings like mm -hmm. within a certain finite number of octaves mm -hmm. he just divided up every tone and it was this amazing sound yeah and so I, I'm not trying to get the idea that I don't care about sound and what sound can yeah. do it's just not your bag it, it, well I, I still I have to use sound to do sure, what of course. I do sure but I'm not going to make that exploration the first thing I do yeah what I'm going to make the first thing I do is my human response to human condition, mm -hmm. the human condition to human experiences, mm -hmm. how I respond. And maybe it's a little bit different between, I don't know, are you going to relate to phenomena? Or are you going to relate to emotion? I don't know. I'm not sure where where the divide between is this music emotional or is this music phenomenal phenomenological? Yeah, I mean, are there I don't certain, know what the difference. There are obviously certain musical uh, gestures that create uh, universal emotion in people. Yeah. And I don't know why, yeah. what, what's your take on that? Why is that? Why does that happen when you play an open fifth in the French horns you think of the Grand Canyon? I mean, what, what, what is that? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there is ways in which just basic sound itself registers against our psyche, against in our brains. And you think that's an innate thing that yeah, we yeah, have yeah. built in? Yeah, now, I mean, and where that crosses over with, I mean, one of the things you have to do as a as a sound artist is to arrest attention. Mm -hmm. You know, you are trying to make everyone focus on something at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just anything, an open fifth makes people notice. There's a distinctive quality to it. Mm -hmm. and, yet, and yet I have to say, for me, where things really start taking off is... I still want there to be a transmission of something from the heart. Of course, yeah. To the heart. And and, yeah. and when, when the Master Corral has done uh, this LA is the World uh, series for many years of working with um, LA-based composers that mm -hmm. have their experience in a different um, culture and environment, music, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and to combine them with other master musicians from that culture, mm -hmm. one of the quotes in our program from Eve Baglarian, who worked with some... Um, I think Afghani and Pakistan, I'm not sure, I can't remember which exact nations, mm -hmm. Persian mm -hmm. musicians. Mm -hmm. There was a quote that she used or that they used, and it was the idea, I think it was a Persian proverb that said, what comes from the heart goes to the heart. Mm. And for me, Sounds that- Sounds like Rumi or something, yeah. For mm -hmm. me, that statement is at the base of what I personally am interested in experiencing in a mm -hmm. piece of music. Mm -hmm. Because I do love- sound for its own sake and i loved that or borealis piece mm -hmm. 
But when they said it was going to be 14 minutes, I thought, oh, Christ, what are we going to do? But yeah. boy, it just zipped yeah. right by. It was it, so beautiful. It was so amazing. Transcendental, really. Um, But for me, I think what I will always be wanting in, in a piece is that moment at which you start feeling like, wow, something is being transmitted yeah. from this person's soul to my soul. Right. And I don't even know how it happened or why it happened. And for me, that's the mystery of what art is. How is it through the medium of sound does a soul state in one human ring up essentially a, that resonant or the corresponding soul state in another human being? Not only another human being. it happens through time. But it's a whole room of human beings. I okay, mean, yeah. I mean, you, you can take this, you can take a thousand yeah, people on yeah. this unified journey. Well, and it happens through, it happens through time mm -hmm. because we have composers who have departed the mortal coil and we still can journey back through the medium of the artifact mm -hmm. of their printed music, right. which we can bring to life. And somehow we, we can touch, recall, we touch them again. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the, that's the true eternal quality of art. That's the true communion of art mm -hmm. is that the, how do these souls become one? That's the word I through was the medium for. Yeah. of sound. Yeah. And so for me, insofar as that communication, that transmission is emotional, insofar as it's contained in words and conceptions. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's why I do think I'm, I'm drawn to choral music because I love Sibelius symphonies. I love the fact that I'm getting something real from him. Yeah. He's given me something absolutely real. I'm getting a real transmission. I don't know for sure what it is. Yeah. I so feel that I, way so I'm about, not saying uh, you, yeah. you don't have to have words, but but words are such a vehicle of extra power, extra communication. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's always been interested in words as a songwriter, mm -hmm. I'm always going to be interested in how that happens for a group of people, a group of singers, for a group of listeners. Yeah. I'm always going to be interested <clears throat> in that. Now, you mentioned Boulez, and I, I kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. Was there... I mean, it seems like there have been periods of time in our history where, and I don't know if this is uh, fair to say, but there's something universal to me when I think of the words beautiful music. And during that time of Boulez and similar composers, I, I feel like there were there was a lot of music that just wasn't beautiful. And I kind of think that the rise of Morton Lordson, Eric Whitaker, and your music really depend on on more universal and I guess what I mean to say is more tonal um, presentation of musical yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's I think that that's on the upswing. I think people are wanting to yeah. hear just beautiful music again. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you know, brutalism. There was like a, maybe a whole period where that's a reflection of what's happening. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. The, well, the... well, and and think about the great destructions of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you respond artistically to the absolute devastation? of whole countries. I mean, yeah. we, just took, we just, we just yeah. took our church choir mm -hmm. to Denmark and Germany for a tour. And, you know, there's a church in the center of Berlin that still has its, you know, tower remaining bombed out and open to the sky. Yeah. How do you respond to that much destruction and not honor it by not just saying, let's make sweet music? You know, so I, I, I in no way want to say anything against that. And, and maybe at times the only thing, way you can express your angst and your anguish is by just uh, by just screaming in some way, scream, that's right. screaming musically. And um, in that way, it is a shared experience if that's well, what's happening in the hearts and minds of everybody. Or, or, or if indeterminacy in music in some way expresses a sense of chaoticness, mm -hmm. like I'm losing control. Uncertainty, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like things fall apart, the center does not hold, whatever mm -hmm. that poem. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yates, I guess, or, you know, the falconer cannot hear, the falcon cannot hear the falconer mm -hmm. in the widening, in the widening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and certainly that's happened with modernism. I think for me personally, and I used to project this need onto other composers mm -hmm. and fault them for it. What I'm finally owning in my own self is for me personally, and this relates to my upbringing, this relates to my, my church background mm -hmm. and just my own temperament mm -hmm. is the notion of healing. And for me personally, I think my music has always been expressing, excuse me, <coughs> my own need for healing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm processing an intense experience, it's bringing me to some extent, some healing. Do you have some? Do you have um, a particular um, event in your life that you're healing yourself from, or is it just things that come with the times? Um, my mother was was murdered. Yeah. When I was 28 Jeez. years old. How did that? Do you want to talk about that? Well, sure. How did that happen? How um, did that come to pass? It was a completely random thing, uh -huh. but it wasn't random. Was she in the Midwest? At the, she they? was in the Midwest. Uh -huh. She was living in Minnesota at the time. Uh -huh. And this is where I feel like. I intersect with some of the great cultural unrest that's happening right now mm -hmm. um, and the ways in which deep cultural healing is necessary because it will resonate for centuries mm -hmm. if it is not healed mm -hmm. and it will until it is healed and transformed. Um, my, my, my parents had a resort on the edge of a lake in Northern Minnesota, mm -hmm. very, you know, very close to, you know, Lots of traditional Native American lands. Is that where you're from? From no, Minnesota? I'm you're from, from, Iowa. I'm from Iowa. So they moved from Iowa to Minnesota to yeah. tend to this yeah. property. Yeah. Huh? yeah. They had a resort. <clears throat> My mom was killed by an 18 year old man on a morning walk in a pretty what? random way. Um, but the, the, suffice it to say that the unrest between white community and Native community mm -hmm. in that area was not separated from what happened. Was it a hate crime? Was it racially no, motivated? No, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Was it just a random act it of was, violence? It was pretty much a random act of violence. And he had lived in a very violent home, had been all, out all night with people, had a car broke down, but it was pretty random. And yet, oh my God. And, and yet I have to say, I, I still see it, I still see in it reverberations of the original violence of of what what happens when one people take over the land that another yes. people have had it's and called I, manifest destiny and, yeah and, well yeah mm -hmm. but but i mean every every culture's had this and every sure. before any europeans came to united came to this continent it was happening mm -hmm. there were people fighting over land of course. that's just what humans have done yeah and keep doing and we have wars right yeah, now are we ever gonna get, are we, i mean what what's the cure for that is there well, is there a possibility for peace or what I think there is, but um, all that is to say is that on one hand, it was random. Mm -hmm. On one hand, it was related culturally to centuries worth sure. of problems sure. and also s social de 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 degradation. Um, who's Class who's warfare, making a living? Sure. Who's mm -hmm. making a living? Who's having a hard time making a living? How does, how does poverty yeah. reflect the conditions under which young people are raised, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's, you can parse it out as far as you want to parse it mm -hmm. out. But for our own family, obviously, it's this sudden incredible violence where a, a fixture in your life is suddenly ripped out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And and I did not have normal grief. 
I did not have normal grief. You know, I think some people weep and wail at the right time, and I, I did not. I did not have normal grief. But, but did you defer it, or how? how? Yeah, and, and also, I, I, I didn't, I did not have an emotionally safe place for myself. I had a loving family. A lot of the energy at that time, I will say, was directed toward my father and the way my father needed our support. So I think I deferred a lot of my own processing. To taking care of him emotionally. To, to that, mm -hmm. yeah. Where were you living at the time? I was living in Chicago at the time. Uh -huh. I got on the first plane. I had wonderful, wonderful housemates that mm -hmm. put me on a plane and got me there very, very fast. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I felt like we were performing the equivalent of spiritual open heart surgery mm -hmm. when we arrived there. I mean, and it was a very strange time. And your dad has, was just... Wrecked. He was destroyed. He was done. My mm -hmm. father was destroyed. Mm -hmm. So everybody had to rally there, around him. I literally sat there with my hand on his heart for mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. And we just sat around him. It's almost like we were performing spiritual open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was, it, it was a very surreal experience. When I arrived, she, her body was still nearby because of the investigation. They could not be... And, and I wrote a ballad about that. Jeez. I wrote a ballad about what it was like to know that that was going on and that she was actually there. Mm -hmm. um, but over the next year, I wrote a bunch of songs. Mm -hmm. But I did not have normal grief. I wasn't involved in a you know a romantic relationship at the time. I think that may have given me more of what I needed as an emotional safe place. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, I responded. And so on, on my website, I have this thing called Holy World, Songs of Grief and Healing. And me being belated and getting on to other projects, I've actually never officially released that album. Huh. But it's it's an album of, of you know. Songs? Songs mm -hmm. um, in folk, gospel, and kind that of just. That was my next question, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. ballad style mm -hmm. um, performed by me and Ryan Harrison. Mm -hmm. and, and I just need to release it because I, th I think people will, other people need songs that relate to that. Um, and you, did you grow up with religion? Are you, do you consider yourself a religious person? Yes, yeah, you yeah, you know, and that's been another, um, you, you mentioned the piece that the Mass Crowd did last yeah. year, mm -hmm. my psalm cycle. That was a whole other journey of kind of reconciling myself to being a religious person. Is it something you fought recognizing, against? Or? Yeah, recognizing the ways in which religions have given fuel to the fire of the raging wildfires of human culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I have greatly fought against it. On the other hand... Just in principle. Yeah, in principle. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I, I'm one of the lucky few who, rather than having incredible baggage from their religious upbringing, mm -hmm. I have wings and roots. Oh. I have wings and roots from my... I, I was raised in Church of the Brethren, which is a historic peace church, mm -hmm. which emphasizes... Jesus' actual teachings. Yeah, like a red-letter Christian. Yeah. Well, as opposed to other constructs of Christianity, which I think have kind of taken over mainstream conception. Well, it's a matter of convenience. That, that, yeah. that Christianity is something about eternal life and believing the right thing to suddenly achieve eternal life. Whereas for, for us and for me, the teachings of Jesus give you more than enough to work on for a lifetime mm -hmm. to not be too worried about other eternal things. You don't even need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to get all that stuff yeah. right. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Just... And, and so for me, like the idea of being a practicing Christian would be like, let's try let's try out these ideas and see where they get us. Yeah. 
And and I have to say for me, although I can find the same I I can find the same ideas in Buddhism and mm-hmm. I, and also in the, in that way I consider myself wanting to be an aspiring Buddhist just uh-huh. as much in terms uh-huh. of my own mindfulness. Maybe not pantheist, but pan um, pan religion in some way. But yeah. but obviously mm-hmm. I know more about my own background. Mm-hmm. So I'm just more. Yeah. I don't have centuries you're, you're of Buddhist yeah. scholarly thought that's just in me. Whereas I do have centuries of hymnody, centuries of um, the best of Christian culture more at my fingertips than I would have the best of Buddhist thought and mm-hmm. feelings at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, so really a big but, but, but theme yet, in your life but yet is... I've, I've, I've wrestled with that a lot. But I do think also my, the healing emphasis mm-hmm. with my personal temperament and also my ideals, mm-hmm. I do want to use music for myself as a healing vehicle. And I do want my music to be healing for other people. Sure. In the sense, insofar as if it can heal from a specific traumatic event, insofar as it is healing in the sense of maybe rekindling a sense of joy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in existence mm-hmm. or rekindling a sense of the gloriousness of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, my second Master Chorale um, big project the year before the one you're talking about mm-hmm. was Inscapes, the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins. You know, I don't know a, anything a, about that. A, a, a nature mystic, uh-huh. also steeped in Christianity to some extent. But to me, the, the genius of his music is being so alive to the miracle of each creature's existence, each creature's creation. And he put that into his poetry. Yeah. So, so for me, if there's a healing in that way, it's just I get to be inspired by his being in touch with that notion. Uh-huh. I get to clothe it in sound so that a community can express it, so that a community can hear it. Right. And let's keep these conceptions before us. Let's keep the conception of what does it mean to see the gloriousness of creation in, a, in this bird or in this, mm-hmm. you know, this soaring bird of prey or, or mm-hmm. this tree <clears throat> or these trees that are cut down that we're mourning over because right. they themselves were sacred in themselves that's right so i mean so in all those ways it all kind of lumps and a record of existence i mean you look at some of these you know you talk about trees in particular they are records of existence yeah three thousand so just the the reverence that they owe that we owe them that's right anyway so but for me all of it does kind of lump together after a while and also you know one of the benefits from aging a little bit is you get to see where are the broader themes in Mm -hmm. my own life of things i've cared about how do they tie together the seemingly disparate things i think i was saying earlier at my midlife crisis around the age of 40 i was mm-hmm. thinking either or but soon afterwards i realized it's both and that's right so i actually quit my church job after i wrote the the meet me on the mountain project mm-hmm. because i said i need to be a songwriter yeah. oh my gosh i should be a jazz songwriter i should be a country songwriter i could be like a hit songwriter yeah which i i, I don't know I, I still think i could be yeah but that's not the way my career has progressed at the moment and then I realized, Sean, you don't have to give everything up for one thing. That's right. You can try both ends. You've got two hands. And and, and so so that's why I'm I'm really enjoying learning more about being a composer, mm-hmm. and and hopefully little by little improving my craft as a composer. I still want to keep improving as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I I'm still interested in seeing how the things that they both care about that are motivating them at a deep level. Now, do you of, compose everything on the piano or do you do you alternate? Do you, do you use guitar or banjo or is it no, no, pri- no, I, piano I do, your I primary? Do a, I do a lot at piano. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the luxury of piano as a choral writer is that 
essentially you get to hear how the chords all stack the voices, up. yeah. You mm -hmm. get to hear how the overtones work out. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a one to one correspondence of how piano string overtones relate to vocal, but but there's a pretty good correspondence of if that voicing sounds amazing on piano, yeah. it's gonna sound amazing in a Yeah, quiet. yeah, yeah. Sure. Um I, there's some exceptions to that that you have to kind of learn by practice, like, oh I th I thought a more thickly voiced version would be better, but in practice pulling out of the note or two actually might improve the choral effect. Even mm -hmm. on piano, it might sound great. Mm -hmm. Also on piano, I can, one of the problems about piano is that in, in my own technique, I'm micro voicing. Mm -hmm. So I can slightly change the volume of each note. So even if there's a note that I kind of want for color, like if I'm doubling a, a color note in a lower octave, the singer isn't going to know that the baritone should sing slightly less on that note, just because right. my left hand is slightly voicing that note left, so the so the sonority sounds beautiful. No, those are things that I have to remember. Yeah. Is, is the choir's not going to voice it note by note like the way I'm going to instinctually voice it when I'm trying it intellectually? Out yeah. So anyway, mm -hmm. th th those are some of the real kind of subtle little pitfalls you have to watch out for. Do you have any compunction uh, going back and rewriting things after you've heard it performed? Is that something that's in your vernacular? I know some composers just write it, they hear it, and they move on to the next thing. Is it? Are these organic living things um, to you, the, your compositions? I, oh, I think they're definitely uh -huh. organic living things. I think that's one of the luxuries that I had, you know, in my composer residency with the Master Chorale is, by and large, the pieces were getting completed pretty close to the rehearsal schedule, or uh -huh. if not during the rehearsal yeah, schedule. Yeah, right, right. So in the sense of there's nothing in print yet. There's nothing that's out there that already has people doing it a certain way. Uh -huh. So yes, by definitely, I believe in tweaking things. Although when you're as OCD as I am- Oh, it's a real, it's a know, danger, yeah. There's not much that you haven't already vetted mm -hmm. by the time it gets so by and large, the bulk of things, you, you have enough experience to know that this is going to work or mm -hmm. this is, I, I'm pretty set. Even if this doesn't sound great, I can't change it. This is how it needs to be. Yeah. Other times you're like, oh, wow, that tempo marking. That was a mistake. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Clearly mm -hmm. the momentum needs to continue here. What was I thinking? Yeah. And then you adjust it. I would imagine you could go down the rabbit hole really quickly too, unless you temper your own um, desire to constantly tweak things. If you have, like yeah. you mentioned OCD, if you have that type of personality, <laughs> you could just never, you'd never release anything. You, you have to come to a point where yeah. you say, okay, this is actually, I, I don't want to say finished, but yeah. it's good enough yeah. that we're going to put it on. I have definitely learned to catch myself in that final like the last couple weeks where it's almost like you're afraid of letting go of your baby. Mm -hmm. So you keep, and I, I edit and kind of um, notate my own music and mm -hmm. I engrave it for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways I let the drawn outness of that process, mm -hmm. let me prolong keeping it in utero just a little bit longer. It's like, Sean, yeah, you gotta yeah, let yeah. the baby breathe. That's it. The baby needs to get out there. You've done enough. It's it's can breathe on its own. Yeah. Just let the darn thing out. Yeah. And so I'm trying to learn to l realize when I'm just obsessing, you got to let the baby. So you out. found that you found that in yourself when it's time. You, oh, and, and, I've and observed then you, myself. And then you, you pull the trigger. And I start realizing you're doing that thing again. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Let the baby let the baby go. Yeah. So, but but I have to say, by and large, I think probably I don't know if you've had other you know people that you've interviewed that say the same thing about their quote babies. I have to say. By and large, when I'm done with a piece, yeah. I'm pretty darn objective about it. Okay. You know, it's its own thing at that point, and it has to kind of make its way on the world based on its own merits. Like, I'm okay, I, I kind of formed you in, quote, the womb, yeah. unquote, 
And now you kind of have to go off into the world and grow up and make your own relationships. Some people are going to like you. Some people aren't. Yeah. And it's kind of your business now because I'm done with you. Do you have any objections to hearing other conductors perform your pieces? Oh, of course. Because this has come up with of course. some of my other friends. Of course. Yeah. Of course. You Where do. you sit there and you're just clawing into the, into the well, chair thing. Oh, uh, no, that's not know, how it goes. And I think, and I do think this is temperament wise mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm a lay student of temper or psycho psychological temperament typologies. Mm -hmm. And so because I have certain systems in my mind, I can say, oh, that composer is a type this, uh -huh. whereas I'm a type this. Therefore, although I might get bent out of shape about a particular interpretation, this person's very open to things being held up and examined in lots of different lights. So maybe that, maybe that. There are certain people that would say, well, maybe that tempo is better. Maybe that tempo is better. I tend to not yeah. be one of those people that thinks that way. I, I tend to think that there's a more narrow range. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And and I think Lauritsen would hew more closely to my way of thinking because mm -hmm. if you've noticed in his scores, he writes his tempo indications with great specificity. Precision, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be quite that precise. And I've had people make great arguments for things, certain pieces of mine. And, and, and you have to let the conductor have some interpretive sway. Sure. They have to have a chance to do that. And, and, the, and the beauty is, hopefully it'll have many performances so it can live in many different ways. And yeah. why shouldn't one conductor's interpretation bear that conductor's stamp? Because maybe that conductor will bring out the Something her different. heroic quality in that particular piece. Maybe another conductor will bring out the quality of tenderness in that particular piece because maybe that piece has both. Yep. And it's okay. So I think I'm... That just happened at the opera. I don't know if you saw the last uh, piece that we did, um, the Boheme, where Dudamel came in at the end and it was like a different... Yeah. Uh, I'd never heard it that yeah. way before. And it was every bit as beautiful as... Uh, any other recording yeah. I've ever heard. You gotta let you gotta let that organic thing happen. Well, and and this is one of the reasons why I really like working with Grant is that he has a great sense of the organic unfoldment of a given performance. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, he really does live in the moment with music. And, yeah. and you know, I think it's very and, important. And, and as a pianist, his whole life, I think he's been experiencing that in individual piano pieces, or as a collaborative pianist, mm -hmm. as he cut his chops. Um, doing that. Mm -hmm. I've also grown up being doing that. So there's this sense of this thing's alive, you know, between yeah. me and the singer, this is alive and not. And, there's, and that in and, the and moment. We're, and we're both oh. contributing to the th flow. Yes. Maybe the singer at this point got me to go deeper or more intense than I was thinking. Like, okay, yes. I'll do that. And then maybe I have a little um, buildup in a yeah. little interlude that the singer obviously is not doing that I get to contribute now and lead the singer into a new energy or something. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm really into that. Well, it's, ma it's magic. I mean, that's magic and, and, and when so, that happens. And so the other thing I, I have to say on the one hand on the, I might present as picky on the other hand, what I usually tell choirs when I work with them is that take all the tempo indications and even the dynamic marks with grains of salt, because when it comes down to it, the composer has to write something because you have to give an indication. Mm -hmm. But but what if the composer themselves was torn? Mm -hmm. Like, does this piece start mezzo piano or is it a little bit stronger than that? Mm -hmm. um, Rinsky-Korsakov, I, I like reading his 
his work on orchestration, he says, he says, you know, he, he, don't start things mezzo piano. He says, make an impact. Right. You know, either draw the audience in by making them listen to a real piano, mm -hmm. or come out there with a forte. Right. You know, don't be wishy washy. And, and I have been influenced a little bit by his commentary. It's like, mm -hmm. don't be wishy washy with it, your dynamics. If you're actually going for something, go for it. Yeah. All the same, what if the composer wrestled greatly, not really knowing how do I mark this? Ostensibly, there's a cello rondo over this page, but when exactly does it happen? Yeah. I can imagine it happening on that phrase. Maybe it happens on those words. Those right. words are more quickening. Right. So you, the composer might not have known for sure what, and they just gave the best thing they could give at that moment. Well, that's the thing about music, too, is that it's so complex and it is so um, emotionally charged. Um, I always think of Wittgenstein, you know, when he, he said that... Uh, language in itself is insufficient to describe what it is we're trying to describe. And that's exactly. what that's what music exactly. notation is, Absolutely. really. It's really limited in some Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. You're, yeah. you're preaching Alice Parker's sermon. Yeah. She just over and over again mentions how little, yeah, it's a roadmap, how little really. the page actually contains right. of that living quality that that's makes right. music that alive thing that performers and audiences actually respond to is that beautiful, alive quality. That's right. I, and and yeah. it's pretty hard to notate that as precisely and accurately in the written artifact yeah. as you can. So so I try not to be too opinionated, although I'm sure conductors that I work with think, oh, yeah, oh, here he's pretty Sean. dang opinionated. <laughs> he thinks he doesn't care. He, he'll tell you he doesn't care, yeah. but then he'll care completely. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, funny. Every time I've met you, every time we've spent any amount of time together, I've always been struck by the sense, your sense of being grounded. You're always in this very particular place in your personality. I've never seen you, um, I don't know, you, you just seem so grounded. Do you have some kind of routine that you go through every day? I mean, you you, ha you have such a sense of of um, ex ex this expansive quality of what it means to be human and what how your art fits into that and how we all commune under those circumstances. And you're very eloquent about it, something that you obviously have thought about a lot. Do you, is that, do you start your day that way? Do you ever just have shit days where you just want to oh. kick the cat? Oh, you know, here's what a shit day is for me. A shit day is where the first thing you pick up, you drop. <laughs> and to me, what that really means is you're tired. You yeah. need more sleep. Yeah. I mean, frankly, yes, I do have some routines, although by nature, for most of my life, I've been against routines. And and my long-term wonderful partner who we've just had a, a very good amicable separation with mm -hmm. was a routine person, uh -huh. uh, Ryan Harrison, who I mentioned before. And did you learn wonderful. that from him? Well, you know what? Or did you just come to I, appreciate I didn't. it? I didn't. I think in some ways I needed to remain the wild card because he was routine, so routinized. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. However, I was coming back from a, a music retreat around the time when I was talking about my either or both and yeah. Uh, cr crisis. Yeah. Actually, around the time I was reconciling that paradox and coming on the side of both and, I was driving back down the five so somewhere in Northern California, mm -hmm. and I had this little epiphany of, you know what I need? I need like a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, May maybe I'll do it like the the monks. Like maybe I'll investigate the Benedictine schedule. Or sure. I, I'm not even sure Set if I it all the tunes. I have it right. So every I'll, like, hour do you'll the, have it. Do yep. the hours. Sure. So I came home and I investigated it. And I I like to work on eight and a half or no eleven by seventeen paper. And I don't use staff paper. I, I use just big paper because I don't feel like it. I, I need space. I I want it to. Do you write your own staves or what? Do no, you, I what don't do you use mean? staves. I just use the note names. And then I kind of 
make them go up and down following the contour of the melody then i fill in all the chords underneath and then i put bar lines in and i feel like i'm much more free because i hate to scrinch up my hand to make note heads really? it just hurts it's uncomfortable you don't hand. use staff paper for composition no 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 no, no, no. Heck, libby larson i i, I just <laughs> use, i use a b flat c really and then i write in the rest of the chord underneath it and then that's yeah. fascinating I feel much more free doing that. Do you do and that sitting at the piano or you do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a wonderful woodworking guy from my church, an older fellow, make me this kind of large drafter's table that fits this size tape. He painted it black for me and it sits on my piano. Wow. But anyway, I was I was at the table with one of these big sheets of paper yeah. trying to mark out what my new schedule, because I'm, I'm a big one for systems. Like every, I'll turn over a new leaf and keep it for two weeks. Yeah. And then like, I need a new, new leaf. But anyway, Ryan happened to walk by when I was working this thing out. I said, well, I think I'm going to have my opening section be 8 a.m. to 10, and then I'll take a 12-minute break till 10, 12. He walked by and said, you're crazy. Yeah, right. He says, furthermore, I know you. What are you thinking? No, he said, he, he looked at the, what I had listed as some of the things I wanted. I wanted to start off my day doing things that I cared about that were refreshing to me, yeah. which was a little gardening. I, I'm a bird person. So I like to feed birds. Mm -hmm. I like to have little things. Also, my dog, I have a little dog yeah. who her greatest joy in life is chasing squirrels mm -hmm. and going with me on the bird rounds while I fill up the feeder and watching out the front window as I'm doing a front feeder. Her, that's her greatest joy in life. So I kind of don't want to not give that to her. But yeah. also, it's good for me to get me going. Yeah. He said, it sounds like the things you want to do for that first period are just hobbit-esque. Uh -huh. He said, why don't you just call that hobbit time and then why do you have why don't you call another time elf time yeah i'm like oh my gosh middle earth schedule yeah so that was like the great epiphany um because i'm also a J.R. tolkien crazy man yeah and i've read like the summer all of the obscure things that no one else has read i've read like multiple times yeah yeah so it really resonated huh? so 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 i so i do have a rhythm when my schedule is sufficiently clear that I don't have to, so I start off with Hobbit time every day. Yeah, and and oh, if you knew my, I I have this. I'm an oatmeal person. Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain kind of people called oatmeal people. Okay, I belong to that tribe. Um, <laughs> but then when I have time in my schedule, then after that I have elf time, and elf time is what I call elevate time, where I get to do it for what I care about. And you so, do this every day? Well, I try to when I'm not too busy. Sometimes I have to double dwarf or triple dwarf, and you'll see what that is in just a second. Yeah. But but in my ideal schedule, the morning is about breathing in. It's what's for me to fill me up. And then the afternoon are the responsibilities of breathing out. All my responsibilities for everybody else. Is this is this a reflection of the way you've lived living up to this point, leading up to this point? Oh, no, 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 no. This is no, something no, no, you've no, chosen no. to do. No, no, This is new because prior to that time, yeah. I think a problem that a lot of composers have is that, in a sense, they have too much time on their hands, but it's too freely structured. And technically, one of my epiphanies was free time is not really free if you're not using it for what you really care about. Mm -hmm. Because you can fritter away time and sure. get distracted. And I found email is a great way for this to happen. Mm -hmm. um, if I turn on the computer and started email in the morning, you immediately engender new emails because people respond. Right. And correspondence is a huge part of every profession these days. Sure. It's a huge part of my, my work as a composer and a performer. It's mm -hmm. a huge part. 
but I don't want correspondence to take over my life. Right. So what I did with this schedule was the morning was for me, hobbit time, elf time. And at my best, that I was really a fundamentalist in my early conversion to this the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I started playing the piano diligently and doing all my scales every day. I worked through the complete keyboard works of J.S. Bach, including Well-Tempered Clavier Books 1 and 2, the Goldberg Variations. I worked through the entire cycle of all the Beethoven sonatas. Just, you know, little by little, going through them all. And I have to say, I learned so much about... Just created a tremendous amount of of productivity. I I also went through, like, these wonderful CDs of music history by interesting you know, lecturers, mm-hmm. things that I was on a music undergrad. So things that I actually kind of like, I have a spotty history of yeah. like, like I've just sung tons of in. stuff mm-hmm. like with Master Crown and, and played tons of stuff as a pianist mm-hmm. or as a chamber musician. But it doesn't mean I've, it doesn't mean there aren't a few spots. Yeah. But anyway, so Elf Time would be used for this kind of stuff, then lunch. And then the big chunk of time would be Dwarf Time. And, that, and, and the reason I use dwarfs as the metaphor for that is you got to go down into the mines mm-hmm. and it's dark and it's unknown and you don't know if you're going to strike gold or not mm-hmm. because that's what composing is like. That's right. That's what songwriting is like. Mm-hmm. You just try and all you do is try mm-hmm. because you have a, a, some poetry that you want to – sometimes you don't even know what poetry you're going to have mm-hmm. yet. So then you go into the other unknown of like, okay, right. I'm starting to look for texts. I have no idea what texts just are going to – Really be. right brain but, stuff. But you jump into <clears throat> the unknown. Mm-hmm. And you just try, mm-hmm. and or you just live you there. Do. You just yeah. you just you put yourself away. there, yeah. And you just keep working. I I've had sections of pieces. I hammer away for days. Yeah. I hammer away for weeks. Sometimes you switch out to another section because you're not making headway because you do not know what needs to happen on this part of the piece. You do not know mm-hmm. what needs to happen, mm-hmm. and it it is just plain and simple. It's hard work, mm-hmm. and yes, there's inspiration. And you have glorious moments mm-hmm. where you suddenly get an idea that absolutely electrifies you. Well, it's like golf. I mean, you hit that one perfect shot and it <laughs> keeps you out there for 20 years. So. Oh, my gosh. Exactly. Exactly. It's a little bit like gambling. A lot of times I use – I live just a couple – a half a block from the church where I've been a minister of music for many years along with my colleague, Nikkei St. Clair. Mm-hmm. So it's a great place to work because I'm a little bit away from the phone. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of space to sing into in terms of acoustically and it's a fantastic Steinway. Mm-hmm. And I've had many, many an hour in that space just trying things, throwing up my voice against the wall, throwing mm-hmm. up sounds from the piano against a wall. Mm-hmm. And I've had wonderful, illuminating moments where I got a great idea mm-hmm. and I got on fire for a while. Mm-hmm. So then ultimately the beginning of this schedule was at the very end of the day you get human time and that is emailing computer work mm-hmm. screen time mm-hmm. because yes correspondence is a major part of most people's professions but most tasks i think as most people would agree with me expand to fill the lot amount of time allotted to them mm-hmm. so if you really have to be concise and do a very direct email you don't have to do an ocd four paragraph email when you right. might have done the same thing very simply. So at my best, that's my schedule. And then leaving the evening open for rehearsals with socialization. Master Krell. Yeah. Right. Um, but but in reality when you get into crunch time, you're double dwarfing mm-hmm. or you're triple dwarfing. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have your afternoon session, guess what? You have an evening session. Yeah. Maybe it goes to two in the morning. Maybe you do quadruple dwarfs. Right. Maybe you get up in the morning and you sk- 
you don't skip hobbit time because you have to stay alive. <laughs> the birds have to stay alive. Your dog has to stay happy. Yeah. And you have to eat. Yeah. But you skip elf time. You know, I, I do not like skipping elf time, but you have to. Yeah. Sometimes human time starts dominating every time. Yeah. And I've had long periods where human time dominates dwarf time. And I've also tried to do my own publishing business for about oh my six or seven years since mm -hmm. I was inspired by Stephen Paulus. Mm -hmm. I went to an ASCAP workshop where he said, there's no reason why today's with, with today's technology, composers yeah. mm -hmm. with the internet can't be doing their own stuff. Well, guess what? What I've discovered is if you don't have the right team in place, if you don't have the native ability as an administrator right. or a delegator, right. which a lot of OCD people do not have an ability to delegate because mm -hmm. perfectionism yeah, you have to have your fingers and, everything. and control. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for whatever, for whatever reasons, I have not, I've ultimately decided that I am not good at administering my own publishing company and I'm working right now to hand off. Uh -huh. And I'm like, how come the universe hasn't given me an assistant? I'm like, Sean, maybe the universe has plenty of assistants out there waiting to help you. They're called publishing companies. <laughs> so anyway, so 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 that's an, an attempt to not let human time overtake my creative time because just sending out invoices, one thing I love about my own publishing is that I get to interact with the conductors that are excited about the piece. Mm -hmm. So then you get to talk with them about, if, hey, if you have any questions, let me know. Right. If, if you want to hear the backstory in this piece before you present it, I'm happy to talk about yeah. that. Yeah. You I, want to talk about your own interpretation? I, I, yeah. I, I do have mm -hmm. a new website that's been in development for a while. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's taken the backseat because is my life hanging on the thread of whether that website gets finished? No. I have... A master crowd rehearsal coming up. I'm playing for a West Side Story rehearsal that I need to actually practice for, so yeah. I do a good job. Oh, I have a deadline. Yeah. Oh, my church choir is going on a tour, and I just wrote a theme song for it, and it needs to be arranged for the choir. Yeah. And I need to come up with some missing lyrics that I haven't figured out yet. Or you're developing a new idea for a new piece. Yeah. yeah so there's anyway, always something. There's yeah. always something to yeah. make something else go to the back burner. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm ecstatically in a downtime right now. Mm -hmm in this summer where I have a little bit more time where I'm able to be catching up on human time, mm -hmm. catching up on dwarf time. And I think once I can get this new website going, I'm excited to give people backstory. Is it live right now, the website? It is not. It's it is not. not. I see. But it, but it will it will have a backstory on every um, piece I've ever written. Wow. And every song I've ever written. So the whole project that we started talking about yeah. today yeah. will have that story told. Do you have a domain already picked Well, it's, it's going to be same, SeanKirchner.com. Okay, good. And and the people that have been developing or running the Master Crawls website for years are mm -hmm. doing right. So I've, Fantastic. I'm, I'm in wonderful You're in good hands. hands. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Um, but I also ultimately have to remember what's the most important thing. It's like these are delivery systems, but you have to have something to deliver. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you always try to keep it in balance of do the work, buddy, you know, mm -hmm. Write the songs, write mm -hmm. the pieces because don't get trapped in the scaffolding. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's a tricky thing these days. The problem with Facebook, the problem with email being able to reach you constantly. You can let human time take over Dominate, yeah. dwarf time, take over elf time. When did you start this system Hobbit for time. yourself? How long has it I been? I started this in about uh, 2010. And have you've seen a huge uptick in in productivity? Um, I've seen I've seen lots of good changes since that time. Uh -huh. Um, I also don't, I don't listen to music very much mm -hmm. and I have lots of listening to silence in my life. And, and I'm not sure if that relates to, I don't feel calm 
as a person. And so when when wow, when when, when, so when people calm. when people comment on that, yeah. I'm always like, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because I don't feel that that's what's going on. Um, Maybe you have just a Midwestern exterior that we're not used to out here on the West Coast. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, yes, there's a lot of Iowa in this Iowa boy. Yeah. But but I do but I do have a lot of quietness in my home life. You don't have kids. Um, I have dogs <laughs> yeah. that don't make much noise. Yeah. And, and also, I, I, I've most of my life, um, you know, at times of partnering or at times of not yeah. significant other, I still t- have tended to have the work day at home by myself. So you, so you don't have a problem carving out that time for yourself, even when you're in a relationship. It seems to always work out for you. It, it has been that way. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest problem in my life has been the intersection of Midwestern helpfulness, mm-hmm. also maybe kind of Christ, instilled Christian ideals of helpfulness. Mm-hmm. I tend to be someone who says yes. Mm-hmm. With, I was just talking with my sister about this the other day. She's a she's a family physician, uh-huh. and where is she? Is she in the she's Midwest? She's in Washington though? State. Uh-huh. And, and and I think there's there's a part of both her and me, and I'm not sure. Maybe our brother has a little bit more boundaries than we do. That kind of wants to save the day. The, 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 there's there's a little bit of the heroic quality in like I'll be the one to say yes I'll be the one to fill sure. in the breach I'll be the one to pull in a little bit of the extra time to and, and it sounds a little bit glorifying of self but 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 so I apologize why for is that. that is that but, a sense of duty obligation yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a sense of there's a sense of duty there's a sense of well but for me it's also a sense of practicality yeah as I observe how the world works mm-hmm not everything lines up perfectly. Mm-hmm. There's gaps between things. Sure. There's gaps where one person's duty didn't quite fulfill what needed to get done. Sure. There's gaps where the amount of time allotted didn't quite do it. And who's going to fill the gap? Mm-hmm. I also relate this to, if we're going to extrapolate this idea, there's a gap of grace. You know, all these communities are aggrieved. There's been great violence done by communities against each other. And there's a gap. And guess what? It's never going to get made up. Yeah. So who's going to make up that gap? Got to make a bridge. You know, there has yeah. to be a, a a gap of grace, of forgiveness, of trust. And I think, for to some extent, I think that desire to say yes, that desire to help, that desire to help when when someone needs to reach in and help this person out. Mm-hmm. This person is suffering right now. This person needs help. Who was that person growing up for you? Who who do you look up to that way? Oh, you mean who I observed doing behavior like this? Yeah. My parents. Yeah, I was that. My grandfather my, was my, that way. My parents. As well. My parents embodied that kind of living. Yeah. But also my my people, as I call them my people. Mm-hmm. You know, the Church of the Brethren community that I grew up with as mm-hmm. a whole just live out this. And they did. They walked the walk. They really did. Yeah. Of mm-hmm. of you do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You just do it. Mm-hmm. And it needs and that's to be enough. done. And, and that's good enough. Doing. Yeah. And also, it's worth doing well. I mean. I have German perfectionism bred in me. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Mm-hmm. So that means it takes more time. Right. Because you aren't just going to do it. You're going to do it as well as you can. Right. And so I, I recognize that everyone has their own little neurosis. I recognize that that can lean a little far toward mm-hmm. perfectionism, toward other things. But when it comes down to it, the bottom line is the world is still going to have projects that took more time, mm-hmm. tasks that needed to get done. Mm-hmm forgiveness gaps that are going to sit there mm-hmm. until someone starts realizing that they aren't going to get filled right in. yeah let's you know, talk about so, it mm-hmm. so so i mean yeah so so there there are principles undergirding what i also just witnessed 
my my parents were always willing to be those kinds of people and mm-hmm. my father still is that kind of person there's this need i'm gonna fulfill that need my mm-hmm. father's a very generous person mm-hmm. has dug in his pocket many times in his life to when there was a great need mm-hmm. he dug in his pocket without compunction i've yeah. seen that mm-hmm. happen so anyway um for me that's just well actually and i don't even think that's unusual I think that's just how human beings actually tend to be. I think so too. There, I mean, there. I always get in, not always, but I have been in discussions with a lot of my friends about the about human nature and what is human mm-hmm. nature. Are, are people intrinsically good or intrinsically bad? Yeah. I believe in what you're saying. I think that we are intrinsically good, and when given the opportunity, we will help one another. Yeah. That's a big part of just being a human. Yeah. Um, I, I was taught that from my grandfather to be kind of an ambassador of good and to show people through kindness and humor and through um, sarcasm and all the things yeah. that that make people smile and have fun, yeah. I try yeah. and I try and do that for my friends, and yeah. I try and be that for people that I'm with. Yeah, and it's just part of it's part of who. And I don't even want to say it's not. I, I wouldn't say it's part of who I am, but it's who I want to be. Yeah, and so I try and do that. Well, and I think you know, and I think every that I mean that's the wonderful thing. I love Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. And she's she's actually my guru, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I treat that hair as a halo. Yeah. And I treat I, I honestly do. You've heard people say that maybe people wear the colors that their aura is. Mm-hmm. I think she's a luminous person mm-hmm. who talk about someone who walks the talk and wants to lift people up. Her, her home community yeah. where she grew up in Pigeon Forge, East Tennessee, mm-hmm. the amount of difference she has made in people's lives is unbelievable yeah and it's but, not but, through but, narcissism and it's not through it's really just authentic she, she has a, she has an album called i think it's called halos and horns mm-hmm. and i love the whole album i love the idea of the title track it's we all have halos and horns mm-hmm. and and any person that you think is saintly just stay with them a little bit walk with them a little bit into their secret yeah. life when it's just them you'll see the cracks. and you'll see yeah. you'll see plenty of nothing saintly about this person mm-hmm. likewise go into someone that you think is just tearing apart mm-hmm. and they will they will do anyway she's she's my guru and she teaches me that mm-hmm. so yeah we, we all have we all have halos and horns well i'll tell you i see i see what you're talking about reflected in the music that you make I see it in the in the person that you are. Like I said, every time I see you, I I always want to be around you more. I feel like you're the type of person that um, we'd all do well to pay attention to and how to live and how to write. And uh, I don't know, man. I'm really glad you came today. That's a pretty nice compliment. Well, it's the truth. And uh, thank you so much for coming today. I know it was a long trip, and uh, I'm I feel lucky to have had you here. Well, I I appreciate the ways in which you've helped elicit good things for us to talk about. So I appreciate the sharing. Thanks, Sean. Well, that's Sean Kirchner. What a great guy. I mean, so smart, so uh, forthcoming, uh, open-hearted, all the things I like in a person. That's what I aspire to be as well. So it's nice to be in somebody's presence who uh, you admire. And I want to thank Sean for coming all the way out. He came from Claremont, which, if you live in L.A., is uh, you know, is not close to the west side. So thank you, Sean, for making that trip today. I also want to thank uh, Greg Geiger for my theme song. I love it. Go to lacoskill.com. Check him out. But I think I'm going to close the show with a little bit of Sean's music. I think it uh, was a little bit more appropriate for the tone of this interview. I hope you like it. hope you enjoyed our talk. 
And as always, thank you so very much for listening.